Hello, hello, and welcome to another edition of Breakdown with the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'm Lars Daleside, and with me today is Joe Trotter, Director of Alex Energy, Environment, and Agriculture Task Force. Joe, thank you for having me. We've got some exciting issues going on across the country involved with everything from the environment, energy, and of course, agriculture. <laughs> well, that's good. It's, it's yeah. glad that we have you here then for all this. We're hitting all three today. Well, I, I think the, the first one, the big one that most people are thinking about right now are the fires that are going on in Hawaii and some of the things. And we've discussed fires before. And part of the problems that we were seeing in Canada, in California, was the fact that they weren't doing proper forest management. But that's not what we're seeing in Hawaii. Oh, to some extent it is. Uh, there's a reason that despite having as many wildfires in the southeast as there are in uh, the, the northwest and, and right now in Hawaii, uh, the, the fires are just way more manageable. And it once again has to do with good forest management practices. It's about making sure that you're not leaving just dead timber on the ground during the dry season. And that's what's what happened in Hawaii, what's going on in Hawaii. And right now, we have just one of the absolute worst wildfires in terms of the, the human toll. There's over 100 people dead right now. It, it took, you know, about eight hours for just huge swaths of, of Maui to just burn to the ground. It's taken out, you know, the, the main city on the island. It's taken out homes, cars, and they, they weren't ready for it. And to be fair, there, there is a hurricane brewing in the Pacific Ocean right now, and they were preparing for that contingency. And Hawaii, you know, does do a good job at, at having uh, warning systems for tsunamis when there are earthquakes out in the Pacific, which there are often. And, and that is what they were preparing for. But Hawaii is in the dry season right now. And there are strong winds with the hurricane not too far away. And all of that led to a perfect storm. You've got just dead timber on the ground. You Look, I, it, it, sometimes it feels like we're beating a dead horse here, but it needs to be said over and over and over again. If you don't want people to die in an entirely preventable way, for the most part, clean up the forest floor, clean up the underbrush. It takes work and, and you, it's, it's sometimes just hard to see when you're going ahead and proposing these measures, what's gonna happen. But what you do see is the de just absolute devastation in terms of human life, homes, families, that's just wrought when we don't do the right thing and act as good stewards of the environment. It's it drives me up a wall every time I see one of these preventable disasters happening. No, no, this is sort of surprising overall because I was thinking more along the lines of in the in the West, you know, we have so much federal land and it is just ripe with all sorts of temper there. But you don't really necessarily think of that as much on the islands right there, but you're saying that that actually was the case, that they aren't doing the thing. They, they are following more of a California-type plan of just let the, dread, the dead trees lay where they are versus more of what we're doing out here on the east, which is cleaning things up. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily it's the California plan it's, or the Hawaii plan. It's the lack of plan. It's just 
just letting things fall, not cleaning them up, and just not taking preventative measures that could save people's lives. This has to be a priority. Otherwise, we are going to keep seeing this happen. You have this whole thing, oh no, carbon dioxide getting in the atmosphere. It is getting in the atmosphere. But what trees do, what brush does, what pretty much all plant life does, is it sequesters carbon inside the plant, inside the tree. When you leave it on the ground and it burns, everything that was taken out of the atmosphere is now right back in there. It, it's So if your goal is to prevent the release of that, then cleaning up the, the fallen trees and the fallen bushes and everything else would prevent the, the release of that. I, it seems like, com exactly, it seems like common sense, but common sense isn't always common. And occasionally, there or in a lot of places, there isn't the political will to do it. And in some cases, you, you have these misguided environmentalist types who say, oh, you know, big tree good. And that's about the extent of the thought process that goes into what's going on in our forests. No, we have taken over as stewards of the environment. If we don't go ahead and, and just practice, just practice cleaning it up, practice making sure that, you know, the half-dead timber doesn't wind up on the forest floor, or if it does, moving it to some place. Heck, we could bury it. It, it. just, it would take this carbon out of the atmosphere, into the plant life, into the ground, instead of this just vicious cycle that has now just a devastating human toll. This is, this is tragic. Well, when we see this, when we see devastation like this, it seems that for the most part, most of your elected officials come back with a ho-hum, this is sort of how it happens. Like, again, we go back to California, not to pick on Governor Newsom, but you go in California, they have fires and fires and fires, and it seems to be like, I'm sorry, that's just the way things are. Is this the first time that we're seeing something like this in Hawaii and we're expecting Hopefully some sort of action. I, you know, there there have been other wildfires in Hawaii, not to the extent of this devastation. But the people we really need to be looking at, there are native tribes throughout the country. They are their own sovereign nations to some extent. And they have their own permitting, their own cleanup. If you take a look at a forest where it's state land or federal land on one side and a native tribe sovereign land on the other... They're, they do not have the same permitting process to go through and keep their, their forests healthy. There aren't these same restrictions, these uh, same political forces at work. They can get the job done when it comes to the cleanup. And now their forests in a healthy year looks a little more sparse. And don't get me wrong, I love seeing a, just see a green out of, out of an airplane window of, you know, lots of forests. It's not necessarily prettier, but it doesn't burn to the ground and cause the just incredible devastation that these these fires that rage out of control, especially on state and, and doubly so on federal lands. Yeah, well, we're going to take that opportunity there. You're talking about how they care for the their forests there on the native lands. There has been another announcement that falls within your area of uh, President Biden declaring a national monument at a place where apparently we have one of the richest uranium deposits, if not in the United States, could be the world. Definitely is for the United States. Now, in terms of the absolute quantity, it's only about 1.5% of the uranium 
reserves in the United States. However, it is the highest grade. It is the most concentrated. In terms of fuel for nuclear reactors, it is the most prime grade A source. Now, in 2012, uh, the federal government went ahead and put a moratorium on new mining developments there. There were already, I believe, two mines that were active or had their, their permitting process. And began. was this also for uranium that they were mining there, or was there other precious? Both, oh. both uranium. And basically, the moratorium was going to last, uh, it was a temporary one. And we're, we're coming up on that date. I'm, I'm blanking on whether it's 2028 or 2030, but it's, it's sometime in the next decade. And that moratorium was not going to get renewed. So the president... President Biden basically took a tactic that was used by uh, President Obama back in the day, which was using the 1906 Antiquities Act to go ahead and just by executive fiat declare it a national monument. Now, granted, there are a lot of important historic sites down there. Protecting the Grand Canyon is, of course, very important, but at the same time, this is a national monument on over 1500 square miles it's not so it's it's not a monument that you you'll see in dc it is just taking huge huge amounts of land and walling it off not not just for mining but also for future hunting uh this actually just goes back to the same problem in hawaii uh places with national monument status if you're going to go ahead and do forest or wildfire mitigation, it is a much more intensive process to go ahead and actually get the permits to do the work there. So the president, in making this announcement, uh, got up there and said that he was going ahead and declaring this a national monument to help prevent carbon emissions into the atmosphere. And how exactly does I mean, I would assume that there are reasons that others are, are pushing for this such of things, but how does declaring this a national monument prevent the carbons? It doesn't. I Actually, quite the opposite. By cutting off one of our best supplies of nuclear fuel, nuclear is one of the cleanest technologies in terms of, or is the cleanest technology in terms of emissions. By cutting that off, we're either A, increasing our reliance on overseas sources for uranium, and we'll get to that in a minute, or we're increasing our reliance on the current set of technology that is resilient. And these days, that is essentially natural gas. Now, it's it's really just a mess, but Real quick to, to hit on on the international aspect. Yeah, I mean, I mean, overall, you, you did say that in that with this would be one point five percent of what's available out there in the world, but we are still using uranium. So, where are we actually getting our uranium if we're not mining it ourselves? We are using in this country for fuel for nuclear reactors the uranium that is used. Less than five percent comes from the United States with domestic sources. Jeez. About 50% comes from the former Soviet bloc countries. Okay, that's... Uh... Kazakhstan, Russia. There, there was a reason that this happened. Uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States was looking to prevent nuclear proliferation. 
And part of that is so we were buying their uranium, so they didn't you have were the buying their uranium to prop them up so that it didn't tank the market on uranium, and every two-bit dictator could turn around and buy it on the cheap. So this was a a foreign policy decision back in the early 90s, and we're still living with that to the day. But while we've gone ahead and sanctioned Russia for all kinds of things, we have been real squirrely about doing it in regards to nuclear fuel. Well, I, I guess, I mean, I can see the, the logic overall on the fact if we don't buy it, then uh, to take your words, some two-bit dictator will. But on the other hand, why should that limit our own ability to mine what's here within the lower 48 at least? It shouldn't. Um, the nuclear is making a resurgence. There were, for a lot of years, the permitting process was intentionally created and, and built up to make it nearly impossible to start a new nuclear reactor. We, we recently had a new reactor come online. It's one of our, our first new reactors in decades. And... I believe that this heralds a nuclear resurgence because, again, you do not have carbon emissions coming from it. Uh, it's relatively clean. It's extremely safe these days. Nuclear is coming back in a major way. We've, we put a lot of money, a lot of time into going ahead and, and figuring out how to, how to create and manage small module, modular nuclear reactors that can meet the energy needs of tomorrow. But all of that is going to need fuel. And if we've learned anything when it comes to, for example, natural gas in not just our energy sector, but in terms of our agriculture sector, we were getting about 35% of, of just all fertilizer comes from either Ukraine or Russia, that particular area of the world. When, war, when, when Putin invaded, the, just the market. I, the, the world had trouble reacting because it was coming from that area. It was suddenly cut off. You had sanctions, the whole nine yards. It gets a lot scarier when it comes to nuclear fuel. Damn. And yeah, so the ability to have our own domestic energy security means being able to go ahead and extract those resources when needed. And of course, we don't want to be polluting waterways. We don't want to be polluting soil. But if you look at mining in the United States, it is the cleanest mining in the world. It is already extremely heavily regulated. Nobody here wants to destroy the environment, but we're certainly willing to let other countries do it on our behalf. You know, it's interesting because I remember reading a press release overall about this, and there was little to no mention of uh, domestic energy security that the the administration reason as to why they were doing this thing, but they did have some other very interesting reasons on why we needed to preserve this land. Uh, yes, and, and there are a number of historical sites there and things that are, are sacred lands to the native tribes. However, that said, this has been sort of a, a long-running discussion. We have to balance our past with our future. There is a way to do that. There is a way to do it well, and there there's just there is a way to find balance. But at the end of the day, energy is our present need. Energy security is a present need and a future need. 
by artificially limiting through just an executive order an area of the country and walling it off and turning around and saying we're doing we're doing this because of climate change and then refusing to just coherently address how apparently this has anything to do with climate change and instead sending out press releases about like the, the beauty of the song and dance connecting us to the earth how stupid do they think we are well i think if nothing else living in washington dc area for the past 50 years i'd say they have a pretty high estimation on that point and on that note, by way of the regulatory missteps that we have left and right, both in what we're seeing in Hawaii and there with the, uh, the, the new edict from the court by the administration, thank you for coming with, on with me today here. This is Lars Dale and Joe Trotter from the American Legislative Exchange Council. Thank you very much.